Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Don't really have anything in the way of notes for you today. Kind of a quiet part of the year as far as our public-facing efforts. Uh, of course, the consulting and product and support teams are all toiling away doing cool stuff, and you'll hear us talk about that later on. But for now, I guess we'll go straight on to episode 68 of the Cognicast. Well, then let's go ahead and start up. Um, okay, well, welcome, everybody. Today is Friday, October 3rd in 2014, and this is the Cognicast. And I'm very pleased to welcome my longtime friend, Keith Sparkjoy of Pluralsight, to the show. Welcome, Keith. Thanks, Craig. Good to, good to join you. Uh, to join me again, I will apologize here in front of everyone. We actually did this once before, recorded the whole show, got to the end of it looked down and my recording software had dropped the entire show so we're uh, we're we're talking again here but you know what it's always good to catch up with with old friends so I don't regret that hour in that way at all and you have actually been up to many many interesting things in the intervening whatever it's been six months that I'm hoping we can talk about at least some of them today um, but before we do any of that I want to make sure that we ask you about the intro music what song should we play in on Oh, Foo Fighters, uh, Miracle. All right. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, Rich Hickey, our CTO, is, uh, is a Foo Fighters fan, so he will be pleased with your choice. Uh, very good. Okay. So so we have we have a long history together, you and I, of working together over the last, oh my, it's 15 years now, I think, because we, we both started out together at the company that you, your partners... My, you know, the founders of Cognitech, Justin and Stu, and uh, my colleague, Tim Ewald, all worked together at a training company long, long ago. Around the same time, we all kind of went different uh, directions. Justin and Stu went off to found Relevance at the time. Now we're, we're Cognitech, of course. Um, and you and a few other of our good friends from those days went off and founded uh, the company that you work for now, which has seen great success, uh, especially recently, a company called Pluralsight. So, um, maybe you could tell our listeners who might not have heard about Pluralsight, about what it is, about your role there, and a, and a little bit about what you guys have been up to. Yeah, so um, Pluralsight started uh, because you know we all love to teach. Fritz and Aaron and I uh, are the three the three founders of the company, and um, we uh, our, the previous company we were talking about was a training company, and we really wanted to keep that culture alive. When you know there was some difficulties at that company, we couldn't continue working there. So we uh, we started Pluralsight, and you know we just started kind of doing the same thing. You know, teaching what we knew. Around 2007, Aaron Sconard, our CEO, felt like we really needed to make a push into the online space uh, and move away from classroom-based training and move towards online training. He felt like we could, uh, you know, really 
turn the model on its head. And that's kind of what we ended up doing over the last, you know, the last five years or so. We've, um, we've basically gone from a model where you would pay, I don't know, like 2,500 bucks to come in and, and, and sit for a week with, with one of us or one of, you know, the many instructors that we had working for us around the world to a model where you can spend 29 bucks and watch any of these, any of these instructors, you know, teach a variety of subjects online. Uh, so there's a, we now offer a subscription service for 29 bucks a month or, you know, 49 bucks a month, depending on the features that you want. And, uh, our goal is really to, to make a great education available to professionals around the world for a, a, a reasonable price. And because of the scalability of the internet um, and the fact that, you know, these can be consumed anytime, anywhere, it, it, it's just a much more scalable model. We got our authors off of the road. So a lot of them that, you know, were having to travel every time they wanted to make a buck, uh, they can now stay home and record with their families. And that's been really healthy for them. And uh, we've just been able to touch a lot more lives. Yeah, it's. I should uh, should mention. I've actually done. I've been involved in a couple courses for for you guys way back at the beginning. You had some. Well, not the very beginning, but early on in relative to Plural Sites online history, I recorded a, a closure concurrency video, which I believe is still available. I've had people pinging me recently saying, "Hey, I watched your your um your tutorial." So there's that, and we actually have uh had done a which is say relevance had done a um a closure course of more more of a full length sort of intro course for you as well. So we've been taking advantage of the platform as well. I mean, like, you know, we all kind of, that is to say the founders of Pluralsight and the founders of, of, uh, of relevance, uh, go back a long way. So it was, it was, it made sense to, to collaborate in that way. So it's, yeah. And don't, and don't forget the code that you wrote for our website years <laughs> right. ago, Craig, uh, Craig, Craig actually was, was working with us as a, as a contractor for a while and helped us, helped us build, uh, one of the early versions of the website. So. Uh, yeah, that's actually, so that's, I think there's some interesting stuff there. So this was 2008-ish, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, we were working in C-sharp. That was before I got into Clojure. That, you know, we were all living in the, the Microsoft um, universe back then. And nothing, there was nothing wrong with that. It was a, you obviously worked very well for you guys to build it. But I think the interesting thing was, even back then, some of the choices that, you know, you and I were collaborating on kind of spoke to the way that some of, some of the things that we see now that are a real huge win. So I'm talking about things like immutability. Like I remember sitting down and writing a lot of classes, of course, in C Sharp, but where we were like, well, there's a constructor and all the, all the properties are read only. So in other words, here's the thing that you can make and then you can never change again. And that a lot of that code even back then was, was using those um, features. And I think too, you guys made a really interesting decision at that stage to not make use of a SQL database at the time. You were, I think we joked the last time we recorded that you were NoSQL before NoSQL was a thing, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we, just, we just put stuff in the file system, you know, little XML files. We didn't, at the time, you know, we, we weren't thinking about uh, having a site that needed to scale. Right. Um, it, was, it was much more about, uh, we hadn't gotten to the point where, where, we, where we were thinking about the kind, sorts of volume that we do today. Right. Um, so yeah, so we were doing NoSQL before it was cool for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now your, your role with the company has for most of its history been the one of, if I'm right, if I'm remembering this right, CTO, is that correct? Yeah, I was the chief geek. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to hear, I mean, I, I worked on it a little bit, but then, you know, you guys took it way beyond the point where I was involved. 
I'd love to hear, to the extent that you can talk about it, a bit about the way the site is put together, because that's a really interesting problem. I mean, you have a lot of users, and you're doing video, which, in my opinion, is one of the harder problems to solve is video, um, just because the sheer amount of data is so huge. So is there what's interesting about the plural site architecture that we could tell our listeners? Well, you know, it's it's honestly, it's not really all that, all that thrilling. Okay. And the reason why I say that is because what, I mean, really we put that, that we push that heavy lifting off to a CDM mm. so that, you know, we, we don't have to deal with, you know, streaming video or anything like that. All of that's taken care of by a, by a third party and we don't have to worry too much about that. Um, we're using Cashfly is, is currently our, our provider. We were using uh, CloudFront, which mm. is uh the, the provider with Amazon. We, we uh, started with Amazon Web Services very, very early um, when their simple storage service was just about the only thing they offered, you know, way back, S3. Um, that, that was how we were storing our videos. And then uh, when CloudFront came out, which was uh, Amazon's CDN offering, their, their content delivery network offering, we, we jumped on that, and that, that really helped out. And then uh, at one point, we started from certain parts of the world, we started seeing customers that were having a lot of difficulty. And Australia was a, was a particularly tough one because uh, everybody was getting the, the closest edge, edge location to them was uh, Singapore mm. uh, with, with Amazon at the time. And so that was when we, we switched over to CloudFront, who had two data centers down in Australia. And uh, we actually geolocated that so that people that were coming from Australia would use Cashfly and everybody else would use would use CloudFront and then eventually we just switched everything over to Cashfly because we we just really liked working with those guys. They were there I, I could work directly with their CTO. They were a small company. They still are you know, a relatively small company and um, just really easy to get stuff done with those guys. So it was it, it's been an interesting challenge. But really like I said, our of course as we've grown this has changed a little bit, but uh, the, the, the handling of the metadata and searching the library and things like that, uh, those weren't super high load things at the time. That's starting to become you know, more of an issue as, as we have more and more customers, you know, more and more active customers on our site. And, and we're, we're kind of scaling in two dimensions because we're, our content, the amount of content we have is growing tremendously, especially with each acquisition we make. And uh, our uh, number of customers is growing. So we're growing in two dimensions at the same time. So it, it is challenging. Um, yeah. yeah. So this is I, I know it's a, so your 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 primary implementation technology is uh, is still .NET. Is that correct? That that that's correct. Yeah. Um, you and I were talking last time that you actually do have, and I was I was a, a little surprised by this pleasantly um, that you actually do have a, a little bit of closure. Now I know you've blogged on more than one occasion about you know about closure and some of the ideas in there and how you're. Uh, making use of those, which is great because as a closure community, I think we're generally pretty good about looking elsewhere to find ideas. So we're more than happy that if there's ideas that maybe we didn't originate, but that we are, you know, using and finding benefit from if other people see that and say, great, we should use that too. That's cool by us. But but you actually do have, I think, a little teeny bit of uh, closure running somewhere in your stack. Yeah, we do. As an experiment, we uh, we built part of our Salesforce integration uh, with Clojure. So we have events that fire in our website that uh, get key, that basically get queued up and and every evening in a batch are are updated in our CRM system, which is Salesforce. So and that that update happens 
a, a lot of that backend processing happens with with a closure app yeah so that was that was an experiment with closure we 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 use a lot of functional paradigm in in our code like in c it's it it's a little weird because c sharp isn't the most isn't it is it doesn't lend itself to to using immutability we use uh a lot of objects with read only fields and you know just to cut down on you know the number of side effects that we can have in our system and you know we figured out some really innovative ways to do that in uh in our code but uh you know it, it does kind of feel like eating with your hand around the back of your neck you know <laughs> sometimes that's a fascinating analogy yeah but I, I, but but i honestly that that it's been so long since i've been in the code you know the 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 team is is uh has really taken over the, the dev team has really taken over the code base and it's theirs now and, and I've been I've been really sheltered from that for a long time. Yeah, so this this actually comes to one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about because um, between the time that we recorded last time, I pinged you a couple times and said, "Hey, would it make sense to re-record?" And you said, "Actually, we're super busy," which is completely understandable. You, you mentioned a couple acquisitions. You guys bought what Train Signal and mm-hmm. Peep Code, right? And you've and you've been working on integrating them. You said, and also we've been working really hard on. Our culture, which was, and I've seen a couple, you know, tidbits from you and from Aaron about some of that, and it sounds really, really interesting. But I haven't had a chance to get the full story from you. I wonder if that was something that you could speak to. Yeah. So w- the founders actually came together. The three of us came together in in Salt Lake. I don't know, maybe. I don't know, six months ago or so. And we had a, we had a meeting and just kind of looked back and, and just kind of talked about where we had contributed the most and, and where, what we were most passionate about. And it was interesting because my team had grown to be, the dev team had grown to be so autonomous and the, the ops team as well. And the support team, all, all three of those teams had had really, those were the three teams that I was leading. They had all become very autonomous. I really wasn't I really kind of worked myself out of a job, which is great because we kind of wanted to be a flatter organization. We didn't want to have a lot of hierarchy. Um, we were trying to avoid politics and, you know, growing up too fast, um, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, during that time we had some acquisitions, like the train signal acquisition happened when we were really small. We still, I don't know, we probably only had, I don't know, like on the order of 20 20 or 30 people working there. And we, we were acquiring a company that had about the same number of people. <laughs> right. And so that was a big challenge, right? Cause cultures collide at that point. And you know, that company had a great culture. They had a, you know, everybody really loved working there. There was something special about it. You know, people also loved working at Pluralsight, but it was, you know, it was just different the way their dev team did things was very different than the way our, the way ours did. And so there was a bit of a clash of, of cultures that hap- that, that happened there that ended up really kind of forcing me to go and, and understand what was so special about the way our company was working. And it, it really, I, I ended up, to make a long story short, at, at that meeting of the founders, what I had contributed over the last nine months was not so much technical leadership. I mean, I had certainly helped around that, but, but it was much more around uh, uh, cultural leadership and just helping keep the small company feel that we loved as as the company continued to grow and that required a lot of a lot of study and a lot of understanding and and just seeing a lot of things that were i I learned a lot of things that were counterintuitive 
you kind of assume that once a business gets to a certain size, there are certain things that you just have to start doing and nobody likes it, but it just seems the way businesses operate. And it turns out that that's, you know, not necessarily true. And we found better ways of doing things. Uh, do you mind if I ask how big Pluralsight is today? Yeah, I don't have the exact head count off the top of my head, but it's probably around 220 employees right now. Okay. So I, that's interesting because I'm, I'm really, so I'm in, I love, I, I, we, I definitely don't want to make the long story short. I definitely want to hear the long version of this because, you know, I'm a guy that works at a company that is definitely smaller than 200, but that business is great right now. Like, you know, we have a product that we're really excited about. We, our consulting services are in high demand. And so it's natural to be at a company like that and say, well, this is essentially a, a growth mode, right? And I like our culture too. And so to hear you say, you absolutely can have a company that is 200 people or more and maintains these favorable characteristics is, is great for me to hear, especially because I think, um, in my experience, there are some ways in which, and, and it sounds like this isn't true for you, but where I've seen that 200 people is the toughest size, right? When you're small, 20 people, everybody can get in a room and get on the same page. When you're 10,000 people, it's kind of understood how things work, and there's people whose clear job it is to make things run a certain way, but that middle size, the 200, 500, whatever, it, sometimes things fall between the cracks because you're, there's still there's enough people where you're not interacting with everybody all the time, but there's, enough, but there's not enough people where you can say, oh, yeah, you need to talk to um, Cheryl. She's the one who knows exactly how to do X and that's her responsibility. And it's very clear to her that it's her responsibility. Mm -hmm. Is that, does that, so I, I wonder if you could speak to that. Like, how are you addressing those, those challenges of being like a 200 person company, but still maintaining the advantages of both being bigger and being smaller? Yeah. Um, part of the interesting thing about that number is that we, we hired or, or acquired, you know, between the two of those things, 200 people over the span of 18 months. Mm. So we went from 200, you know, maybe 20 people to 200 people in a very short period of time. And so uh, kind of that sort of hyper growth mode, you know, that really precipitated us trying to do this research and try to try to understand. So yeah, it's, it was, it, it's been a journey. It's been quite a journey, but, but the first thing that we did was we sat down at, at we uh, our, our leadership, our, our management team at the time, that's what we called them at the time, the management team, top management, everybody who reported to Aaron, basically our CEO, we went off site and we talked a little bit about culture, the culture of the company. And, um, we had just read a book by Patrick Lencioni called The Advantage. Kind of, uh, you know, that was kind of our first stab at understanding company culture. And, you know, we, we went through and did some teamwork exercises in there, which were, which were really interesting. Kind of got some, some we significantly increased the trust of, between the, the folks on the, on the management team at that offsite. It was, it was, uh, it was um, really interesting stuff. But that was really just the beginning one of the things that one of the, I think the most important thing that came out of that meeting is we sat down and we identified some employees by name that really stood out as people that we wanted to have more of. It's like, you know, this guy over here, this lit gal over here, they just really exemplify what we really like about Pluralsight, all the things that we like about Pluralsight. 
And this was, once again, this was part of the Lencioni exercises was, was to do this and to come up with, with three values that, that really represent all those things. And so that was when we came up with our values. And that was, that was quite a while ago um, that we did that. I don't remember the date, but um, that was really our first step. And those values that we identified were truth-seeking, entrepreneurship, and eternal optimism. So the truth-seeking one sounds kind of weird, but... Actually, no. I, I'm sorry to jump on you, but the thing that was going through my head as I was thinking about you and Fritz and Aaron is, like, if I'm in a room with you guys, and granted, I know you, the one thing that kind of strikes me is I know that none of you are going to lie to me, right? Like, that's that <laughs> I can see where that's absolutely a big part of... Anyway, I'm sorry to jump in there. Go ahead. No, no, it's cool. It's all good. Yeah, I mean, we we, we, we did have a spirit of honesty, but it really wasn't about honesty so much. Mm, okay. It was really about getting to what's real and trying to remove distortion and really try to understand what's real. And and it also has a flavor, truth seeking also has a flavor of continuous improvement mm. because we're always seeking a higher truth. And it also speaks a little bit to the culture that we had when it was just, you know, the three of us kind of pushing the company forward. It, it was a spirit of it was, there was a meritocracy of ideas. It's like it doesn't matter whose idea it is. If it if we feel like it's it's got some merit, we're going to give it a try. If it succeeds, that's excellent. We succeeded. If it fails, it's a learning, right? And you don't point your finger at the guy who had the idea and say, "Don't ever come up with another idea like that again." Mm. You know, so we 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 really had this, just this really easygoing uh, working relationship where it really was just you know we were working as a team and and it was uh, it was all about finding better ways of doing things. And so we really wanted uh, to, to express that as one of our values. And so that's what, that's where truth seeking came from. Entrepreneurship was, um, you know, we really want to hire people that uh, they just look around them and see what needs to be done and just do it. It's like, just jump on it. You know, we don't need to fill your queue with something, you know, just, just come on board and just help us figure out how to get things done. We were really small at the time. We were operating with a lot of autonomy. We wanted people just, we wanted people who could just run and go. And, and take ownership and, and, and help us move the company forward. And then eternal optimism, that came out of just we've worked with negative people in the past and it's just kind of a bummer. We really prefer people who bring positive energy to solve problems. And so once we kind of enumerated these three values, that really became a hiring guide for us. And that really helped us, I think, hire people. And even when we thought about acquisitions, it's like, how, did, how does this company fit into that? Are they going to fit into this mold or or are they so different from us that it's going to be hard? And so I think that really gave us an advantage by sitting down and doing that. Although we still have a lot, a long ways to go. And, and I'll, I'll talk about that as well. Okay. So this, so you had read this book. I, is, I don't remember. So I know I've seen a bunch of, you know, like we're on Facebook, friends on Facebook and stuff. So I've seen a bunch of comments from you to the extent of there's the work of one particular person that you, you uh, as a company have been paying a lot of attention to. I don't, I don't, is it, it's not the same guy, right? Mancioni? No, no, no. It's not, Lencioni is a management consultant, I believe. Okay. Um, I, yeah, yeah. He works for the Table Group, I think is the name of the company. But um, yeah, it was Deming. Deming was, right. was, was uh, the guy that I found. So, so Lencioni um, has a lot of great stuff that, you know, kind of helps you get to your core values. And he has kind of this pyramid um, that he builds in his model where you start with, you know, trust and you kind of build up there up from there. And 
there's accountability and commitment and all results and all, all of this. And, and it, it is a lot of it is kind of traditional Western based uh, management philosophy, which um, is very different from what I found with with Deming. So there is there's some bits of Lencioni that we're still we still believe in, like the values and stuff like that. That makes sense. But there's a there's we 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 were able to take it to the next level by by going and understanding Deming and I discovered Deming not directly. Um, I actually read a book called Drive um, by Daniel Pink and I read another book called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries and both of those books were very influential to me. Um, have you had a chance to read either of those? No. <laughs> okay, no, I have right. not. I mean, the, no, but I've, I've seen you talk about them so much that they're, that's like, oh, I totally got to read these if Keith is into it. But anyway, but no, but please, I want to hear about them. So continue, please. Well, the, the fascinating thing about Drive was was just this notion of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. You know, traditional Western management is all about extrinsic motivators. We have to motivate people. We have to, you know, create a sense of urgency within our people and all of this. And and uh, that's really extrinsic motivators, like you know, pay for pay for performance, um, you know, bonuses, sales commissions, things like that, uh, slogans. All of this is just trying to motivate people. But really, if if you focus on creating an environment that people love to be in, that people feel important, and they are actually important, where they actually contribute on a regular basis to changing the way the company works you know they're able to influence how the company works and and, and make things better they're going to feel a sense of ownership for that and and, and they're going to feel very intrinsically motivated to to want to see the company succeed and to do whatever they can um you know to give their best effort but also to be constantly thinking about how things can be better and and i and it was really exciting reading that that book drive because i i remember thinking back to places that I'd worked as a coder and just realizing, remembering how helpless I felt. I couldn't change things. I had a lot of responsibility, but I had no power to change things. And I, I remembered how demotivating that felt. And just reading that really ex got me excited. It's like, wow, I, we could actually have a place that people love to work every day. And um, I'm the kind of guy who likes to look at bibliographies and go back. And uh, honestly, I was influenced by Rich Hickey in this too, because Rich is very fond of of going back and looking at work that has been done years ago, and it might seem a little old and crufty, but it still is very relevant today. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of the tools that you guys use, like Emacs and and stuff like that. I mean, it, it and and uh, just a lot of problems that have been solved. It's like why go and reinvent the wheel when there's this wonderful solution that's out there. Don't be afraid of its age. And so, looking in the bibliography for both Drive and the Lean Startup, I noticed this guy called Deming. And it's like, well, who is this guy? I'm going to go check this guy out. It uh, turned out that Edward Stemming was a guy who lived from 1900 to 1983. No, sorry, 1993. He was, uh, yeah, he's 93 years old, lifelong learner. Uh, he was a quality guy, one of the guys that went over to Japan after, the, after World War II to help them get their industry back on their feet. Um, he made a big difference over there. And uh, he just had a lot to say about, about business. He was very, very hard on the Western style of management. He had a lot of, I, I remember reading some of his stuff and thinking, this can't possibly work. 
<laughs> like, you know, like, you know, t talking about getting rid of annual performance reviews and things like this. And, and it, at the time I was thinking, oh, how it, it, it seemed very, um, a lot of it seemed very counterintuitive from what, uh, you know, from what you learn about how Western companies work. And, uh, but, but, but the more I learned about it, um, and I actually ended up reading his book out of the crisis, which is a pretty big book and it's kind of, it's not the easiest read. He wasn't, he wasn't the easiest guy to communicate with, but he had a lot of, a lot of really great ideas and ended up, ended up actually buying, uh, the Deming library, which is a set of videos, probably about 20 hours worth of videos. And I just sat there and watched them over one weekend. And I remember it being a very emotional experience for me because I realized that was the point that I realized we could actually have a company that grows and it could get as big as it needs to get. And we could still have still be a place where people love to come to work every day where I want to continue to work. It's honestly before that I was thinking I was kind of thinking I, I wanted an exit mm. because, it, you know, at some point it was, wasn't going to be fun anymore. So. Yeah, so I, I learned a ton from that, and and we ended up we ended up uh, making significant changes, in, you know, in the way we do business. We we eliminated um, a lot of extrinsic motivators that just we realized weren't necessary, and we're actually demotivating people or 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 motivating people too much. You know, when you when you incent, I'll give you an example. I, I, there were certain I don't even remember who was who all had incentive pay on the executive team, but there were certain executives that had goals that they had to hit in order to make their nut, right? They had to, they had to hit certain numbers in order to get some, you know, bonus pay. I think our sales, sales and marketing, at least, I think were incented that way, perhaps. I don't remember all, everybody who was, but, you know, what Deming, one of the things that Deming points out is that it's really easy to think that you can optimize a company by sub-optimizing the parts, by optimizing each part. And what you end up creating instead is, you know, people want to hit their numbers so bad because that's how they're going to, you know, they're going to succeed that they'll oftentimes end up competing with each other or doing things that are not in the company's best interest um, because of because of those external motivators. And we'd much rather have everybody just working as a team. And so, you know, one of the things that we did pretty early on was we eliminated those uh, those incentives and just, you know. We just worked it out with each each one of those those execs that they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't be incented any differently than the rest of the team. So the team, the executive team, would win together or they would lose together. And so that was that was one of the early things that we did. And then later on, we decommissioned the entire entire sales team. We put them all on salary, hmm. and uh, we immediately saw you know, some benefits from that. The team started working together more. They started sharing ideas more, helping each other to grow as opposed to hoarding their, you know, their sales techniques and because, the, you know, they were all kind of competing with each other. That's really interesting, you know, because I've been at big companies a lot in my consulting history and, and I've seen things like executives standing up two teams with the same goal. Like, in other words, we need to make this, product. You go make this product and you go make this product. And the implicit threat that that implies, one of you is going to win right. <laughs> and one of you is going to lose. And oh, right. it was miserable, right? It was always yeah. so miserable and how hard it is to do your work. And, you know, I'm a 
pretty, I like to think I'm a pretty rational guy, but I'm a human. And I've had times in my career where I've just been unhappy in my life. And I look back and I'm like, oh, I was miserable at work. Fortunately, it hasn't been very much. And it hasn't been what I've been at Cognitech. That's been, I've had tough projects, but I've not ever had that at, at Cognitech. But, you know, I look back and it's like, oh, well, no wonder you were unhappy even on the weekends. It was because work stinks and I spend a very yeah. significant portion of my mental energy all up. At, at exactly. Work. Exactly. That creates a lot of fear. And, and one, of, uh, one of Deming's points was drive out fear. Figure out ways to remove fear from the organization, especially, and this applies especially to companies like ours that are solving problems that, you know, are, are relatively new and, and unique and they require a lot of creativity. I mean, I, I literally remember days when I'd be so stressed out that I had to get up from my desk and go and walk around the block in order to be able to think, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that, that's the sort of thing that we wanted to um, – that we wanted to uh, eliminate. And so, you know, in your particular example there, uh, where you've got a couple of teams that are going to go off and, and work on a, and try to compete with each other to build a project, I think what Deming would encourage is, yeah, go and have those guys do parallel implementations, but have them share ideas. They're not competing with each other. Nobody's going to lose their job. You're going to try this way and we're going to try this way, but we are going to share ideas as we go and help, help, build each other up because we want the best solution. Both of us want the best solution and it doesn't have to be mine, right? It's okay if it's not my solution. You know, that's, that goes back to this notion of a meritocracy of ideas. You know, it's like we, we do want what's best for the company. So I, you know, we've learned, we've learned so much, you know, we, we barely avoided going down the path of top grading, which is uh, stack ranking people. Mm -hmm. Um, we found Deming right around the same time. We um, were we were almost uh, our CEO was reading a book that was encouraging that, and he thought, "Oh, that that you know, it seemed it seemed like we were going to go down that path." And so, thank goodness we didn't, because that's that's demotivating. That's very demotivating to be stack ranks against people. It's very one of the things that you learn when you study Deming is that it's very difficult to measure people, right? And you, and so many companies spend a, an awful lot of time and effort doing it. And it, and it really just ends up demotivating people, and it's a big waste of time is what it turns out to be. That's what we believe. And so we like to focus on, uh, on the output of the system, and we do care about numbers, but we, um, we really want to work as a team to try to have theories of how we can improve the numbers and, and execute experiments where we do it as a team. There's no fear at that point. I'm, I'm not afraid I'm going to lose my job or I'm not going to make my nut if, if, if this experiment doesn't work. It's like we're all working together as a team in order to try to constantly improve you know, the customer's experience. You said a word a few minutes ago that, was, uh, that really, t I think, strikes at some of what you're saying very directly, which is creativity. I, mean, I think we, we've said on this show before, you know, software is a creative act. I mean, it's, it really is about, to, to me, because I'm, this sort of my personality it's to me it's about like making something you know like actually assembling a, a thing i mean obviously it's it's a thing of the mind but you know i do woodworking and i and i think there's a lot of analogies into shaping an object in the world as opposed to creating software but it's it really is fundamentally i think a creative act it's not it's not a mechanical act it's there's some typing involved but but the, the nut of it is um is creativity and i i think it maybe is easier to understand why an environment like the one you're talking about 
is going to be more productive if you look at it that way because you know imagine like being put in like you know this infinite series of gray cubes with dim lighting and mm -hmm. you know rows of tired people trudging by with picks over their shoulders and saying paint a happy picture right or make something new right as opposed to coming in to people that are energized and like throwing ideas around i mean that's obviously a much more creative environment I mean, is that something that you have explicitly made a part of of your culture or is it just something that falls out of the other tenants that you've that you've uh, talked about i think create I, I do i think i think that what we're trying to do is create an environment simon sinek has a has another great book that i've i've read recently called um, leaders eat last and he it very much is just a different take on all of these things that we've been talking about but he comes at it from the perspective of safety he, he talks about all of the danger that exists outside of your company, your competitors, the the economy, you know, changes in government that could change that could impact your company. All of these things that could happen that are are very scary and you know unknown. Why create danger and fear inside of your company when there's already all that stuff already out there? Why don't Why don't you focus on his point? Is why don't you focus on creating a circle of safety? Mm where you can come into work every day and feel safe and, and feel like the guy next to you has your back. You know, he describes leadership. Uh, I love the way he describes leadership as, uh, you know, you, it, you don't have to be a manager in order to be a leader. You look to the person to your left and you look to the person to your right and you see, how can I help these people be better? How can I, how can I help? I'm a leader if I'm doing that sort of thing. How can I have this person's back? And when we're all doing that together, we create this sense of safety and that's so important for people to be creative. It's, it, 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 it's hard to be creative when you don't feel safe. Ed Catmull, uh, the president of Pixar animation and, uh, Disney now, now Disney animation, he produced a book called creativity Inc. And, uh, talks about how they do stuff at, at Pixar and, and how they develop their culture. And, uh, it was fascinating because reading that it's like, he talks about Deming. He discovered Deming too. So it was really interesting to see that he kind of went down the same path that we did. That's another great book though, to learn, to learn a little bit about, uh, safety and, and, and culture. And one of his biggest points is that there is always sickness lurking and leaders tend to be in a bubble because nobody wants to tell them bad news. Mm. And the deeper your hierarchy is at your company, the more of a bubble your top leadership is going to be in. And that just makes sense because at every level, you know, you've got somebody not quite, not quite telling the whole story to his leader and that leader not quite telling the whole story to his leader. And by the time it gets to the CEO, yeah, oh man, everything's wonderful. You don't realize you have all the sickness brewing. And so one of the things that Ed would do is spend a lot of time on the floor where the work is happening, really trying to see, just shining a light, trying to root out places where there's fear and working on it, trying to make it better. Hmm. That that feels to me like that's a that that's that's a never ending task, right? Right. It doesn't it doesn't matter how much you train people, you you give your leadership training, you're still going to have to keep looking for that kind of stuff and really try to keep that environment safe. Well, I think that comes back to the the thing you were talking about with continuous improvement. I mean, that's that's something that when I came to relevance really struck me. I mean, a lot of my experience had been at, at working at big companies. I'd worked with you guys, of course, as well. But, you know, the bulk of my experience was at places where there really wasn't an, an avenue for change. And the biggest thing 
that I saw at Relevance was the, the, the one thing that we would probably never give up is have a way to talk about what could be better, right? Like mm. that's, yep. that was key for us. And, and I, th I think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. You can't have an environment of fear where people are afraid to speak up against the status quo, right? You know, you'll never get better. You have to drive that fear out. You know, you, of course, you also, you know, eternal optimism is one of the things that, that, that we talk about at Pluralsight a lot. We don't want people be, being jerks about it, you know. Right, right. It's like, we're all going to fail. It's going to be horrible. No, it's like, talk about, talk about how things can be improved, right. you know. I do this yeah. with my kids all the time. One of them will whine and I'll say, you're talking about problems right now. Talk, talk instead about solutions. I can't find my glasses. Daddy, could you help me look for my glasses? Oh, yeah, of course I can do that. Uh, anyway, I, yeah. I want to I make sure that we reserve some time to talk about a couple of things you mentioned earlier. You mentioned um, you still have some challenges remaining. You mentioned uh, you know some things that are coming up. Can we turn to those for, for a bit? Uh, sure. Okay, go for it. <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure. What, what did you... So, I mean, I think one of our biggest challenges is the thing that I talked about with Ed Catmull. Okay. I, I honestly think that that is the big thing. It's like con continuing to to you know be vigilant, really, and and just just continuing to to root out possible problems, continuing to help our leaders get better, continuing to try to try to have our leaders realize that command and control is is not the most effective way to to, to lead a team. You know, I, I personally had an experience with with letting go of command and control that I'd love to share with you. It's oh been, yeah, please, yeah. It's really interesting because as I as I started to learn more about Deming and uh, Drive was also very uh, enlightening with, in in this respect. I started to on on the de development team. I started to give them much more autonomy. I remember it was hard. It was so hard because you know I was the guy that built the system at Pluralsight, right? I was the one that I I, I know I got to know best, right? I'm the guy. Uh, I, you know the way I the way I want to do it has got to be the best way and. <laughs> You know, I started letting go of that a little bit, and you know, over time, I got better at at uh, just letting the team, you know, come to consensus about how they wanted to do things, um, and not being such a. I mean, I wouldn't, I wasn't such a nasty boss that I would tell them how to, how to do everything. I wasn't micromanaging them, but I definitely had a big opinion about how things should be done. And um, I, when I started letting that go, I, I immediately saw the team start to take more more ownership. When they started realizing that it was their ideas that they were implementing and not my ideas, I could see immediately a sense of responsibility grow in, in that team and an, a, sense, a sense of enthusiasm and excitement grow. So that was a, that was a real, you know, kind of a surprising thing to me. I, it wasn't something I expected to see, but uh, it, was a, it was a nice outcome. And I remember, um, I remember the team going down a path and I just, I, I knew they were going to hit a wall. I knew they were going to hit a wall. And so I'm using the Socratic method to ask all of the questions I can ask and try to help them avoid hitting this wall, which they eventually hit. I knew they were going to hit it, and they hit it. And, uh, but what was interesting is as they backed out of that, just the amount of learning that they got by going down that, the, the path that was maybe the wrong path, it ended up being really useful in other places. And so I, I almost I, – I, I, I realized at that point that – that sort of failure, you know, if the team is going to fail, sometimes it's it's okay to let them fail. Mm. And sometimes they just have to kind of hit a wall. Um, if you go back even to, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, written in the 40s, 
he talks about you can't change somebody else's mind. You know, sometimes they just have to figure it out on their own. And uh, and I, actually, it, it made me a little less fearful about about failures like that because they ended up learning a lot, and 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 it ended up not being nearly as expensive as I as I thought it would be. Mm. And then there was a third a third surprise that I got out of it, where on, on another in another um, case, I totally expected them to hit a wall. I could see the wall coming, and instead of hitting it, they went right around it, and they 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 did something I never would have thought. Uh, possible or I never would have even thought of. And so I realized after that learning that by giving up command and control, or if you hold on to command and control and you, you dictate to your team how things will be done, the more you do that, the more you limit your team to your own creativity. So by unleashing the, the, the team to, to really try things the way they wanted to do it, it, uh, it was, it was very powerful. So, so I'll oh, go ahead. But, so, so I experienced autonomy as a leader. I experienced giving autonomy. And I, and I went and talked to Aaron about this, uh, our CEO. He was my boss at the time. And um, we, we talked a little bit about these unexpected results that I got when I started giving the team more freedom and, and more autonomy. And, and, and I would still, like, once, like I said, it wasn't like I was dictating to them before, but I was just being much more influential. And now I was stepping back and, and really letting them come up with ideate and I was just mainly leading by asking questions and uh, he and I told him about my experience with that and how successful it was being and I, how excited I was about the about the prospect of being able to do this and Aaron was a very command and control guy you know he grew up in in a Mormon family it's very patriarchal you know it's just that's just the way things are done very very much that that way so he was very fascinated by that and I remember later that afternoon, we had a meeting with the executive team, and he started experimenting with that. He's like, so what do you guys think? He's like, well, let's vote on that. And it was just like, it was just, I felt this weight lift off my, lift off my chest. Hmm. And it, so it was, it was within the span of a month, I, got, I, I had an experience of kind of letting go of command and control uh, as a leader and, and having my leader let go of command and control. And so I, I became a real believer in, in giving teams autonomy. And that, that's something that's, that Daniel Pink talks a lot about in Drive. And that's something that Deming is big on. So, I mean, obviously, you're not talking about relinquishing all decisions. I mean, at least, well, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Maybe, maybe that actually is the case. But I, I feel like you still have an opinion. You still you still have a responsibility. You maybe have a wider vision in some ways because you're having conversations that not everybody else has. Like, how do you, like, is there some sense of being in charge or something that still, that still manifests even when you take that approach? I think it's, I think you feel, you, you, it feels a lot less like you're in charge hmm. is, is what it is, what it comes down to. It's surprising how well it works. It really is surprising how well it works. We will, we really do want to push decision making down in this organization. We want we want more decisions to be made lower in the company, and less decisions have to rise up uh, through the ranks. You know, the people that are close to the work are the ones they're the ones that know. And 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 it it, it really talk. This is all about pushing fear out of the organization and introducing more trust. And so there has to be a lot of trust for this to work. And 
obviously are hiring, you know, we're hiring based on those values. Um, we want to hire people who care, people who, you know, don't just come in to work to collect a paycheck, but they really, really care about, about making this a great, you know, really moving the company forward. They feel part of it and they want to be with us for many, many years. So they want the company to succeed. You can trust people like that. Those are the kinds of people that you, and if you don't trust them, why'd you hire them? Mm. Hmm. Go ahead. And I, and I think that, you know, on any given item that you have to make a decision about, it's always helpful in a team setting to talk about how the decision will be made so that the team members understand. Uh, there's a few different ways you can make decisions. You can make decisions by consensus. You can say, look, we're at the end of this, we're all going to vote. <laughs> and that's how we're going to decide. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, at the other extreme, you can say, well, you guys are going to give me the input and I'm going to make the decision. I'll be the, the decider. And that was kind of how Aaron used to run things. You know, but we're we're kind of we're kind of changing that a little bit. We're we're moving more towards consensus um, versus um, somebody, one person making a decision. This is very interesting to me because uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'm I'm an employee of Cognitech, where where we do have a lot of. I think we have a lot of trust, and so you know, we exhibit some of those same properties and ways of doing things. But at the same time, I'm I've also been a consultant for uh, fifteen years now. And I'm often in environments, you know, the bulk of my work day is not working on Cognitech stuff, except as a consultant employed by Cognitech, but working in another organization. My current client is great. They're, they're also very trusting. But I've seen tons of uh, environments where, as a, as, and in some cases, especially as a consultant, like that's unthinkable. Because there's a lot of places where consultants are second class. It's, it's not true right. at my current client. But Oh, you're the, it's weird, actually. On the one hand, you're the outside expert. And so your technical decisions might get more weight, even though they're not necessarily based on more expertise than some people inside the organization. Mm-hmm. I've had the weird experience one time of being hired at, I will add, double my usual rate because I was totally buried in them. Like, I can't make time for this right now. Uh, you know, and he said, what if I pay you double? I said, okay, I can spare two days for that. <laughs> right. And so, but the whole reason he wanted me to come in was to say, and I was, it was my honest opinion. He wasn't feeding me words, but was to say things that he had already said to his, his peers and managers, but because it was coming from an outside person, right. That it would get more respect. So you get that combined with the well, okay, fine, your technical expertise, but anything else like that touches on like how we do things or whatever, forget it. So, so hearing about this environment in that context of these two worlds I live in is, is utterly fascinating to me, totally food for further thought. And I think, uh, I think I have another three or four books to add to my uh, already <laughs> towering reading list, but, but it's, well, just... it's, it's worth, it's worth investing in learning about company culture, especially if your company's growing. I yeah. mean, it's, it's better to do it when you're small. True, and it, and it's also better to do it when you're healthy, right? When when you've got revenue coming in, right? There's a lot of people that don't discover, you know, Deming and other folks like that until you know they're in a crisis. You know, they, they this is the way they band together in order to solve the problem. Mm. We've also seen some physical manifest, manifestations of our culture too, like um, uh, when we built our we built a new brand new office in Farmington, Utah, uh, because we were. We were running out of space. Mm-hmm. As we were going through all of all of this cultural learning, um, we were getting really close to finalizing the plans, and Aaron just like totally came out of left left field and said, 
uh, we don't want to have any offices. We don't want execs to have offices. And it was like, oh, okay, totally, you know, totally redo all the plans because all of the offices were in the center and all this. And so what we have is instead of offices is we have enclaves. So we have areas where rooms that you can go in and get some privacy if you want to chit chat with somebody else or you want to have a phone call. But we don't have, I mean, our CEO and our CFO and our marketing lead and everybody is just out in the open with everybody else. And so you'll see people come up and just hang out with the CFO or the CEO and just, you know, just anybody can just walk by and it's just open. It, it, it promotes a lot of transparency because mm-hmm. it's okay for you to walk by and listen in on something that's going on at that level. It's all right. You know, and I, I, I think that's really healthy because some, they say that sunlight is the best disinfectant. <laughs> right. You know? Right. And, uh, so I, I really like that, um, that aspect. <laughs> That's cool. We we uh, I don't know if you uh, I don't know if you've been by our new office, but uh, next time you're there, I'll have to take you by. And we have uh, Justin does have an office, but like two walls of it are glass, and people frequently use it for meetings. And his door is often open, so in a sense, that's very much. And the rest of the office is very much laid out like what you're talking about. So it'd be fun to bring you by next time you're down. Maybe this coming spring, hopefully we get you to come down to the Hacker B and B again. And uh, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah I, I I've got more time on my hands now that I don't have any operational duties at Pluralsight. Cool. Speaking of which, I should mention that my role now is culture coach at Pluralsight. Oh. And so I, I'm, I'm more of an advisor than anything else. And, uh, you know, I write a lot of blog articles on uh, culture. Um, we actually have a little blog called culture.pluralsight.com. Okay. And uh, so a lot of my writings are up there. You know, just kind of help out when people have questions about implementing a lot of this stuff and moving forward, just kind of acting as an advisor. We also hired uh, hired another guy, kind of with the same role, named Max Brown, who is uh, uh, full time uh, boots on the ground right there in Salt Lake. I- I'm not in Salt Lake; I'm actually in Southern California, and so it limits my ability to see what's actually going on. But Max is there and is able to have one on ones with people and really coach leaders. And his background is uh, is in leadership coaching and and you know, giving set leadership seminars and things like that. So he and I complete each other's sentences. So having him <laughs> right there in, in Salt Lake every day is just a, a real blessing for me. Well, I somehow missed that culture.pluralsight.org. I think you, uh, dot com. Um, I'll have to get myself subscribed to that. Well, okay. So we're, I, we're kind of coming to the end, end ish of our time. I do want to not cut you off. And so you have all the time you need to talk about uh, if anything, anything else that you want to uh, to cover today, tell our listeners. And I would also say that this conversation has been completely fascinating. Company culture is something that clearly affects essentially everybody, right? I mean, you know, you have a culture. You, you could argue that maybe you don't have a culture if you're a one-person company, but you probably at least have customers, and so there's a, a culture that emerges from that. So I, this is a fascinating topic, and I, I think one that we could spend a lot more time exploring. So. I, ho- I really hope that uh, we get a chance, and I can easily make it be the case that we'll get a chance to talk about this again. But as I said, um, if there's anything else you'd like to talk about today, we still have time to do that. So anything else you'd like us to, to dive into today? Um, I don't think so. I think there is, I mean, we could talk all day about this stuff. Of course. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. And so, yeah, it'd be great to talk again. Um, but I, I think that's I think that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good introduction to the topic with some good books for people who are interested in learning more about that stuff, those are, you know, a great list of books. And 
I'd encourage anybody to, you know, I remember looking at the Deming library, the videos, and it's 1500 bucks to purchase those. And uh, I remember almost not buying them. And uh, I would have been really sad had I not. Mm. So for somebody who's interested in learning about Deming, it is a really good investment, especially if you're, if you're thinking about company culture. You know, Deming was very influential for, for a lot of different people like Peter Drucker and, and, and a lot of people that came after him. So if you really want to go back to the source of where a lot of this stuff comes from, um, Deming is kind of a sweet spot. I kind of look at it. Uh, uh, he kind of stood on the shoulders of some giants. But he, he, the, the work that he brought together and his own, what he added to it, I think is a real sweet spot in comp- company culture, a great place to study. Cool. Well, we'll definitely put links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes so people can, can find that or, of course, use their favorite search engine to do so. I'm, I can't imagine it's very difficult to locate, but we'll make it even easier. Cool. All right. Well, then I guess that brings us to the final question of the show, Keith, which is... The music we're gonna play out on something. You're you're gonna pick it in a second here. What what would it what will it be? Oh, it's uh, "Violent Love" by Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo, <laughs> awesome. Before the show, we were kicking around. Uh, you know, I, I said, "Hey, you know, you get we gotta pick some music." You're right, and I think I suggested a couple other bands from that era. So, but this is obviously the one that that you like. So that's very cool. Does this particular song have any any special meaning to you, or just one that you like, or? It's one of uh, Danny Elfman's really early songs. It was. Uh, it wasn't. It's not a well-known one, but it, it, it's uh, probably my favorite of, of 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 all of their of all of their work. Cool. Well, that that is playing in the back right now. Right now, we'll get a bit more of it after the at the end of the show. Um, but I gotta say, Keith, it's been super awesome to talk to you again. My recording software so far looks like it's cooperating, so I'm looking forward to getting this one out to everybody. Super glad we got together. You know, any excuse to talk to you is fun, but great that we got to share this conversation with our listeners. So thanks a ton for for taking the time today to come on the show and talk about this really, really interesting set of topics. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Craig. It's always great talking to you, man. Oh, absolutely. Likewise, and uh, we will we will definitely have you back. Because, like I said, this is a this is a topic that affects everybody, and so um, I think we could we could easily dive in more or go a different direction. But uh, but we will close it down there today for today. This. Uh, Thank Keith one more time, and of course, thank our listeners. This has been the CogniCast. You have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Keith Sparkjoy on Twitter at Keith Sparkjoy, K-E-I-T-H. S-P-A-R-K-J-O-Y. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Kim Foster. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.